Blog Talk Radio. person because ultimately our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent fairly, America failed. Put them in the lowest paying jobs. Put them outside the equal protection of the law. Kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God bless America. No, no, no. Not God bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power, one broadcast broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Making progress. Black people are at the losing end of the racial gap. Black people have the highest unemployment, the lowest median family income, the highest debt, the lowest graduation rate from public schools, the highest incarceration rate, and it goes on and on and on. So that you, you, at one point you have to say, we need to pause for a minute and look at what is really happening to our people. And we need to kind of get our ducks in a row. And by that, that's what I meant by let's get serious. Let's, let's stop playing. You know, let's, let's stop celebrating symbolic victories. Emma Calca Brown, I believe it was, who said, claim no easy victories. We need to stop claiming these easy victories that are not victories at all. You know, we look at, uh, in the article, in, in 1960, there were 103 black elected officials throughout the nation. By 1990, that number had grown to 9,000. 
But as you, all the social comfort indicators show that the political and economic status of African Americans continues to to decline. We we, and at the same time, we have more black elected officials than ever, but we require nothing of them other than that they get elected to office. See, for black people, getting elected to office has been the goal, and and uh, we celebrate being the first black somewhere. You know, we celebrate being the first black president of uh, the McDonald's organization, the first black president of American Express, the first black, or that there is a black president of uh, AOL. There's a black president, as I say, of McDonald's. There's a black president of the United States. There's a black borough president in Brooklyn. And the supporters of the black borough president in Brooklyn simply point out that the, the black borough president has made history by becoming the first black borough president of Brooklyn. See, if you get serious, you will say that being the first black president of the borough of Brooklyn means absolutely nothing. That Amen. The, the, being the first black, so what? There have been black borough presidents in Manhattan. Black borough presidents have existed since the early 60s with Hugh and Jack. You know, the Democratic machine gives the black the borough presidency to Hugh and Jack, Percy Sutton, C. Virginia Fields, Helen Marshall. This is not the first black borough president. It's just the first black borough president in Brooklyn. means the, to be the first in Brooklyn is meaningless. What we need is, that's not what you celebrate, being the first. Because, see, by celebrating being the first, then black people are emotionally gratified simply by the fact that a brother has been appointed, if not elected, but really appointed borough president of Brooklyn. And that in itself is enough. There's a, a Letitia James, a city council member, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. the first. She's now public advocate. And, she, and her supporters point out that she has made history. She's the first black woman to be elected to citywide office. Listen, for blacks, just getting the candidate elected has always been victory enough. But when you begin to look around and study politics and look at politics seriously, and you begin to understand that, you know, uh, as I say in the article, once you place voting in proper perspective, most groups that are engaged in politics now understand that it is not the winning of office for its own sake that is important. Elections are only a means to the true end. Politics is about owning and controlling the resources that control our lives. Just being elected is not, that's not the end. But for us, that has been the end. For other groups, getting elected has been the beginning. That's where we start. Once we get elected, then we begin to move on implementing a political agenda. So when the, uh, borough, when, when, when the mayor is elected, Giuliani is elected, um, Koch and Giuliani, when they are elected, that's when they get busy. They, they got elected in order to privatize the city. They're looking at the demographic changes. They think that the city is going to be predominantly black and brown. They think that ultimately 
there's going to be a black or Latino mayor of New York City, and those and 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 the black or Latino mayor might really have a political agenda. So to protect ourselves from that. As we get elected, we will privatize everything. We'll enter into a 90-year contract so that the Board of Education is no longer a city agency. It's now run by a private organization. Everything, everything is privatized. That is part of the agenda. But for black folk, simply getting elected has been sufficient. And that is what we're saying we have to, we have to change. We have to get serious. We have to stop celebrating meaningless uh, achievements like being the first black. See, there's a black president of, of the McDonald's organization, the food people. Well, the black president of McDonald's does not, and we do all kind of things, candlelight vigils. And, and ahead, see, my, my concern is that that is all right with us. See, we yeah. have normalized, yeah. see, we have normalized powerlessness so we can have mm-hmm. black folk who are in these prestigious positions and some have remarkable titles of vice president for global diversity you know and multicultural <laughs> management and stuff like that i mean that's vice president for global diversity what in the world is that and but having real power doesn't mean anything for us not enough uh, and and so what we have without perhaps without realizing it, we have normalized powerlessness. This is our common ground. Thank you for joining us tonight. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Stay tuned. And now Janice Graham. And good evening, and thank you for joining us here at our common ground. This is the sanctuary for Black Truth where we honor our own perspectives, our own ideas, and our own strategies for moving forward without question, but in an informed and non-reactionary way because we're looking at the critical analysis of today's issues that challenge us. We're glad to have you with us, and I'm Janice Graham. Yes, I am. I checked right before I put this headset on my head to make sure that I am Janice Graham. For those of you who are listening on your smart devices and you would like to join the family, the Our Common Ground family in our chat room, you can come to, here's the URL, www.blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. That's where we are, and we're waiting for you if you want to join in the discussion during the course of this program. And if you are new to Our Common Ground, thank you for joining us, and we hope that you'll stay with us, for this is not just a broadcast. It is a process. And tonight, we are so pleased to have back with us, and you all know I love talking with uh, our guest tonight, Dr. Tommy J. Curry. He's a professor at Texas A&M University in philosophy and African-American studies. And um, he's with us quite frequently because we honor his brilliance and his ability to see, and that's S-E-E, Um and we have a key word tonight that he has brought to us recently 
Dr. Corey wrote in his persistent advocacy of black males in America the following, and I quote him, the occurring structure of black males coping with their rape is to accept its impossibility and imagine themselves as agentic. We need psychologists and social workers in these communities willing to treat these boys as victims and theorists willing to engage female-perpetrated rape beyond the idea of sexual initiation. In the context of all of us as victims of racial attack, Dr. Curry's word, the way he used the language, the word agentic. Agentic is uh, defined as a social cognition theory. It was originally proposed by Stanford University psychologist Albert Bandura. And it views people as self-organizing, proactive, self-reflective, and self-regulating as times change. It is really the capacity for human beings to make choice in, this, in, in their world and to enter into an agentic, A-G-E-N-T-I-C, A-G-E-N-T-I-C perspective state, we are not, we realize, we come to understand that we are not merely reactive organisms shaped by environmental forces are driven by inner pulses, that we are self-organizing, proactive, and self-reflecting and self-regulating as is required. So tonight, in the context of us all as victims of racial attack, I am honing in on Dr. Curry's word that simply sent, when I read, when I read his piece, and he was talking about black male rape, but when I read that piece and I came across this word in the context of people imagining themselves as agentic, it really occurred to me in the context of what we say to each other, we need to get real. We need to stop being crabs in a barrel. We need to stop being reactive. We need to stop to lessen our chaotic selves in the face of challenge and tragedy that we need to organize uh, not in a complex and difficult way, way which impedes organization, but in a simple and natural form to organize ourselves in the face of challenges. To And, and, and it also came up to me, and I'm not sure, and I'm going to talk with Dr. Curry about it because he always brings opportunities to our common ground for a discourse which can be dis transformative. And I'm asking the question whether we can imagine ourselves as agentic people. 
And if such a preposition may be impeded by some inherent fallacies. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And I hope that you'll join us in this conversation. You need to write it down. Our number is 347-838-9852. Let's talk about our agentic selves. And we thank Dr. Curry so much for joining us tonight and for igniting what I think should be an intriguing conversation and discourse and exchange about this notion of us being agentic. Tommy J. Curry, thank you so very much. I'm so glad to talk with you. Yes, ma'am. Always a pleasure. <laughs> you know, all, during the time that I took off to try to stretch my brain beyond what was happening in the 2016 electoral campaign season. Mm -hmm. You know I took a long time off, right? That's why we haven't talked in so long. Um, How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Doing well, just, you know, writing and trying to get some some rest as the year is closing down. Well, I want you to know that I have pre-ordered, and I hope that everybody that listens to us tonight will pre-order The Man Not. That gives me chills, too. (laughs) Uh, I know I sound like, uh, uh, what's his name? Chris Matthews, when he was talking about in in 2008 when Barack Obama was um, hailed as the winner of the election, he was talking about a chill going up his leg. Well, the chill is not going up my leg. The chill goes in my brain. And I am so very, very... Uh, proud of you to get this book done. It is so important. The Man Not. And the book won't be available until June 2017, but I've already pre-ordered it. Amazon.com. So I'm ready. I am ready. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> but before we get started, I do want to shout out to your wonderful Dr. Gwinnetta, um Curry who received her Ph.D. in social work uh, since the last time, in sociology, since the last time you were with us, and your beautiful girls who are just growing up to be such beautiful children. Oh, thank you, thank you. I saw the picture of them in their own, it seemed like they were in their own chess competition. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, one of the things before we get started I want to talk to you about is the visit of Richard Spencer, the white nationalist, to your campus last week. How did that go, and what were your thoughts about it? Well, I mean, you know, like most most faculty of color, um, I think it was uh, inappropriate. Um, I think the university hid behind free speech uh, when I think there's a very clear difference, uh, at least in jurisprudence and free speech uh, theory, uh, between the difference of one having the right to speak freely about their opinions or politics or the freedom of association that they may have other, you know, group with other people to do so, and hate speech, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that when you have Klan members, when you have white supremacists and white nationalists on a college campus, uh, and you have student organizations claiming that they want to be known as European Aggies, 
you know, uh, championing the white area race, I think that's very different because I think that those groups historically have demonstrated they don't hesitate to use violence. Now, while this alternative right group is saying that they're nonviolent, I think the larger question is what happens when you bring certain groups of people in that may not share that philosophy? So even if the university suggests that it was merely an exercise of free speech that was, you know, championing white supremacist ideas and that they were nonviolent, there's still an element of that group that historically and even presently uh, is very anti-immigrant, very anti-black, and hasn't you know, uh, stops to not use violence or even celebrate the violence that you get when black men are being shot by the cops or brown men are being shot by the cops in America. I think when you look at the kind of terrorism that you have with someone like Dylan Roof that claims that he killed black men and women on a Sunday in church because black men are rapists, that you have to look at that language and say, is this element coming to a college campus? And given that Texas A&M is overwhelmingly a conservative institution, uh, I don't think that the unity rally would simply celebrate diversity when black people are, I think black faculty are 3 to 4% of the overall faculty. And you're talking about roughly a little over 2,000 students uh, out of 60 or 70,000, then that's not necessarily uh, a brand of diversity. It means that you're trying to save face because institutionally you're not making changes that increase um, black student ratios. You're not, you're not bringing changes that take seriously Latino or Latina presence on the campus, and now that the governor is threatened to defund universities that uh, try to declare themselves sanctuary campuses under the Trump administration, it means that the idea of a neurodiversity in such a unity rally doesn't deal with the reality that black and brown students, specifically brown students, are going to have to live under in an anti-immigration and increasingly xenophobic uh, Texas academic community. So I think that when you have someone like the alt-right come in, uh, it's more of a recruiting mechanism. Uh, I think that while people can say that they're liberals and they're going against it and they're refuting it and this is racism, yeah, 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 uh, inevitably it means that you're going to have a wider campus, and that's traditionally and historically not something that's really bothered uh, conservative or Christian whites all that much. Did did I understand you to say that you had 60,000 students? I think we're at that now. Oh my God! Um, and how many? Uh, what percentage of those students are African American and Latino? Well, in the College of Liberal Arts, uh, my college, uh, I don't know mm-hmm. the Latino numbers, but I know there's 958 black males and around 1,300 black females. Wow! So we're yeah, so we're not doing well in terms of numbers at all. And and what were the responses by black students on the campus of his presence, even his presence? And I want people to understand the import. There's one thing to have an ultra-conservative present on a college campus as part of uh, academia's belief that they – that diversity in opinion and positions are somehow educationally refreshing. But there's a whole nother thing when a white supremacist is brought to a campus. So how did the black students respond to this? Well, the black, the black, the black students, the... Uh so Asian students, the, the, the Latino students, uh, were very energized. 
You know, they they really did take the lead in protesting uh, Richard Spencer's presence. Uh, you had great faculty, um, uh, people like um, uh, Dr. Hinojosa, who's in the history department, was really energized in supporting the students. So there was a presence that showed that there are groups of people, especially students of color, who simply do not uh, accept the presence of a white supremacist uh, without challenge. Uh, but I think that what the administration did in terms of, you know, spending the money at Kyle Field to have a unity rally really does detract from the institutional problems that the university has, right? Uh, we have administration, we have chairs of departments, you know, people uh, that even in my department that are adamant that we don't need more black men at the university. There are people who are adamant that we're doing too much for minorities now, even though they're massively underrepresented. I mean, these are the kind of institutional problems that are going on within the college and the university as a whole. So to suggest that, A, we're only reacting to the white supremacy takes the focus away from how even these liberals, progressives, slash moderate conservatives are still participating and actively uh, trying to decrease or at least certainly not encourage minority presence on campus. You know, last week, um, thousands, I think it was last Tuesday, thousands of Boston high schoolers walked out of school, did a citywide walkout, uh, protesting and challenging the mayor of Boston, Marty Walsh, and the governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Charlie Baker, to force them to guarantee uh, that Boston would continue, Boston, Springfield, and Amherst can't, could continue as sanctuary cities. And I was very surprised uh, when in Texas and places where, and I don't call his name, I will not say his name, this person who's going to be moving into the White House, um, um, into the West Wing. And I haven't seen that kind of activism uh, in response uh, to sanctuary cities like Chicago, uh, like Los Angeles and San Francisco being shut down. Mm-hmm. But I was very, very uh, proud of the high schoolers here in Boston. And Boston doesn't have a large either uh, um, Latina or uh, Caribbean uh, or Haitian uh, population. It's significant in the sense of other cities like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Miami. So I, I'm I'm not sure why. I mean, in my day, Dr. Curry, if Richard Spencer had shown up in one of these colleges and universities with only 125 black students citywide, there would have been mayhem. Right. No, I certainly so, understand that. I certainly understand that. But, I mean, there was an increased police presence. Some of my colleagues said they couldn't even get into, um, you know, the speaking event. So, you know, I mean, from what I heard, it was chaos all the way around. But I did oh, listen to okay. the speech that was that was broadcast. And, I mean, if you're if you're looking at the language, and I think that this is something that's very important for people, 
you know, this generation of students, I think, especially in the world of Black Lives Matter uh, and trying to build up an active kind of college protest culture in the 21st century, uh, one of the things that, I, that I, you know, I've said in the past and I'll say it again is that as students, there is a certain limitation uh, that, that we have to, to actually protest institutional racism and white power. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to discourage it and say it shouldn't be done. But at the same time, you know, we have to remember that in the 1960s, given that there was such a strong race conscience and student movements were backed up by lawyers, community leaders, community activists, civil rights activists, et cetera, right? The protest of the movement that the students were doing in college led them into protests in the street, led them to protest and act, you know, and activism for larger societal change. I think one of the problems that we have here, especially given that um, the Black Lives Matter movement is certainly being institutionalized and accepting money from, you know, the Soros that um, you're you're doing different things, you know, uh, with with the Ray McKesson, um, you know, just just kind of being institutionalized in universities into certain political organizations is that there there is no outlet that is outside of the structure, outside of institutions or the law that students are willing to conceptualize. So that means that while students may protest on college campuses and then move that to the streets, inevitably it gets sucked back up into speaking tours or to running for mayor or to visiting professorships or lectureships at universities. Those are not the tools that lead to actual institutional change because the institutions are now rewarding those young people and diffusing the environment. Uh, one of the things that you know people like Huey P. Newton explained in his dissertation, War on the Panthers, was that the 60s was an experimental phase, one of the ways that the government can test how to diffuse social movements and black radicality. And I think that's what you're seeing today. Um, we're hiding behind things like identity politics to suggest that we can't criticize Black Lives Matter because the leaders are women. When we should be asking questions in terms of this has been around for two or three years. How has it actually led to social transformation? What does Black Lives Matter look like in terms of social transformation, actual concrete change in a world under Trump, in an increase in a world where you have uh, a switch from white liberalism or progressivism, so a decrease of white allies to white moderates or conservative, what does Black Lives Matter look like? Those types of questions haven't been asked because those questions are critical of leadership. So those students on college campuses that are going under the banner of Black Lives Matter, students on college campuses that are saying we want to protest, we want to stand up to Richard Spencer, also have to think, well, what are the practical consequences of doing so? Because you can you can protest, you can march, you can put things up on Facebook, you put things up on Twitter, but does that does that cost you four years later? It costs you because you go right into white systems looking for jobs as if that doesn't cost anything, whereas we have not set up independent community organizations. We're not setting up different kinds of outlets for young people who are being radicalized or apprenticeships or things like that in other areas. We have black lawyers. We have black doctors, et cetera. This is a time for us to actually talk about the professionalization and what's next after college students uh, – after after students who are in college now actually get out of college. And that's why I think that, you know, that's why I've been so critical of Black Lives Matter, not because of the message, but because I'm always curious. It took you, you know, it took them a year and a half to come up with, you know, concrete platforms. And I've had several conversations, you know, at at conferences or panels with leaders of Black Lives Matter in the United States and in, you know, Canada, and it's just a a hugely anti-empirical uh, venture, you know, we, you know, facts don't matter. It's about who's twerking for the freedom of the revolution, and you know, who's who's performing the identity better. Uh, I've just been massively disappointed in terms of an 
actual understanding of what's going on in the country besides black people are oppressed or black people are getting shot. Uh, there's an absence of working class people. There's an absence of black males. I've said that before. Uh, it's simply not sufficient to have a movement that says it's championing police violence and anti-mass incarceration when the groups most affected by that are being kept out of leadership positions or at least even being discouraged from being the center of discussions about um, police brutality, violence, and mass incarceration. And there's a pipeline issue. How do people that's in the university that's committed to Black Lives Matter move out of the university to actual uh, community and social programs? Now, I know there are some branches of some scholars I talk to that are doing that, but when you're talking about something like a Richard Spencer, who's at universities to recruit, right? I mean, we should make no mistake about that. This is not a situation where it's like, oh, he's just here to spread his ideas. The issue is he's spreading his ideas because now the, the dissent, now the power, now the symbolism of a racial hate monger like Trump energizes, right, working class, rural, poor, and conservative whites. I mean, think about it. If someone comes to Texas and says, look, we already know that this place doesn't like black people. We already know that it's, massively, you know, it's hugely anti-immigration. That message is going to resonate. And there are going to be people and whites who didn't come to the, to, the, to the speech that absolutely agree with Spencer. So we have to start thinking, what does it look like, not just that a racist won the presidency, but what does it look like when people are going to be recruited and socialized into the kind of race hate that Trump espouses? And we... Black scholars are simply not ready for that. I don't think black community leaders are ready for that because we've lived so long on the idea that we're trying to make things better that when we see, oh, things are still just as bad as 1950 and 60 has just changed, mm-hmm. I don't know mentality to actually engage that. And I can tell you from my classes, even the people who consider themselves uh, radicals and progressives and for Black Lives Matter still don't have a language outside of intersectionality to talk about racism or white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are catchphrases. Mm-hmm. These are not serious analyses of how institutions or social movements work. Well, you know, one of the the reasons that I pulled this word that you used in some comments about black male rape, agentic, um, is that uh, agentic leadership, and I posted it in our chat room because I wanted people to really, really understand uh, what this word means. Um, There are two things that are very important that I want to talk with you about Um, because I think the way in which you use the word in your comments about black male rape really applies to black people in general. Absolutely. And in and in talking about leadership uh, in your comments uh, just a few moments ago, I had posted in our in our chat room that agentic leadership derives from the word agency. Mm-hmm. And it is a style which is generally found in business, which is why I'm so intrigued by the word. And it is usually used by people who understand that they are in control of underlings or subordinates. Mm-hmm. We talk about it in the business world, in the corporate world, <clears throat> as agentic authority. But there is another reflection that we have to have on this word that I want to talk to you about, and that is uh, the piece that has to do with social cognition theory uh, in which P. 
people, the perspective is that people believe and understand that they are producers as well as products of social systems. But in the context that you talked about it, um, in 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 reflection of black rape, black male rape, is the question of whether or not we, as a people, can imagine that we have agency given our historical landscape. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, well, I think, so you know, what, in, what, oh, sorry, what I want you to reflect on for us mm-hmm. is there are reasons for which we are unable to capture, to realize, to radicalize our human agency, our capacity to make choices because there are so many impediments and so many challenges, and that uh, – I know I'm going on and on, Tommy, but stick with me for here for a minute. <laughs> it, it took me back to a piece that you wrote some while back um, – when you were talking about we who must fight in the shade and Derek Bell's yes. philosophy of racial realism as a basis of black politics of disempowerment. And I tried to reflect on that. And for those of you who are listening, you must read this essay. It's by Dr. Tommy J. Curry. We who must fight in the shade, Derek Bell's philosophy of racial realism as a basis of a black politics of disempowerment. And that is why I played our our opening feature this morning today was from Bob Law talking about us being stuck into being unempowered, a state of unempowerment. Okay, so Kind of elucidate on this whole idea of agency and our inability to enter into a state or even to imagine ourselves as being agentic. Well, I mean, I think I think there's lots of people who've made similar observations, but I think the problem that we have today is really twofold. Um, first is regardless of how we think of the black community as a whole. And I know that many people resist this idea, given that there's so many different identities now that we try to complicate and uh, draw nuance around. But if, if we look at the black community as a heuristic, we have to ask ourselves, how is the black community conceived? And most of the time, even amongst black scholars in the university, the black community is written about as if it's pathological. So if you see some of my comments on Twitter, I'm constantly arguing with, you know, scholars and I guess people from black Twitter, you know, they'll say something like the black community is homophobic, the black community is misogynistic, the black community is nihilistic, the black community is this, right? So there's this idea that the black community, unlike the white community, is largely unreflective. And what we do when we say that is we really code it because what we're talking about are usually males and we're often talking about poor, uneducated black people, working class folk. So we talk about the black community as if it only exists as a problem. 
and the way that many people, including you know black scholars as well as white, launch themselves as academics is to say that this pathological community needs to change. So they introduce themselves to the world and to the academy as translators of the problems that exist that white people share or believe exist, and then how their ideology solves it, be it feminism, progressivism, you know, anarchism, Marxism, whatever, you know, you pick you pick your tea. The second thing that happens is that because we talk in terms of identity and discourse theory now, Agency has been reflected upon as us simply announcing our being. So we think that we're being agents or agentic when we say something like, I'm a black woman, I'm a choir man. Or black, ma- that, our, our, our black lives matter. Our black lives matter, right? When we assert mm-hmm. something into the world, we're saying that's agency because we've got trapped into this post-structural discourse where we think agency is breaking silence. So the violence of grammatology or the violence of signs that we were talking about in the 1980s, uh, largely because of the efforts of Skip Gates and people bringing in Derrida and all these people, was that we now see writing or saying a statement as a form of activism because it's better than the status quo, which would have been marginalization or silence. Now, those two perspectives are key because when we think about what we're actually doing, that's not agency at all. That's rhetoric. It's a speaking yes. in a way. To get yes. a certain rise of our audience, but right. it's not agentic in the sense that it's on the basis of self-reflection that social transformation happens. Because when we're talking about and who it, accepts the rhetoric, it's all happening within a university or academic, a closed environment where people are already primed for that. It's not actually changing or reconceptualizing the power that the black community or different individuals in the black community have to act. Right. And we and we get trapped into that. Uh, especially around social media. Yes. Or and that's one of the you know, reasons I'm such instance, a big critic. That jackass Roland Martin uh, gets on national TV with that jackass Richard Spencer, and Twitter and Facebook went crazy about how Roland Martin really got him told. Well, guess what? Roland Martin can't come to Texas A&M, but Richard Spencer can. Right. Well, I'm sure somebody will let Roland Martin. He always comes to the football games. Um, but I've had my disagreements <laughs> with Roland Martin as well, you know. Um, and largely, you know, how and, you know I feel listen, about that. <laughs> but listen, you know, I don't, I don't know the man personally. Um, you know, I've, I've seen him on Twitter, so we've had a Twitter disagreement. And you know, the disagreement was about when all these black boys were being shot. You know, I asked him, I was like, look, why are you bringing in just black scholars instead of black scholars or black male scholars that can actually talk about the conditions of black men and boys? The same thing when you had the Ray Rice situation. I said, listen, you're bringing up people who have been victims of domestic abuse. That's fair. But why are you not bringing up scholars or social workers who actually see domestic abuse and can educate our community about it? I was like, if you if you think that the work is just falling into stereotypes about black men or domestic abusers without saying, listen, things like poverty, things like depression, things like previous trauma cause these things, then you're not actually educating the community. I thought it was a very tame point, but mm-hmm. evidently he disagreed. Um, the the larger point, though, is that you're right. I mean, people people celebrate what people say on social media uh, as if they're doing something. So most black people really, you know, or black scholars really do want to get in, you know, get that call. It used to be from Melissa Harris Perry, right? But they really want to get that call to be on white media stations. But that's not educating people. The question you have to ask yourself is if you merely imitate 
what the middle class or black intelligentsia believes about the world. When we already know theory has a problem explaining reality, then what does it mean when you get on a show and both reify what white people think by explaining to them liberal theory, which is the basis of most of the assumptions that black academics have, or it doesn't disconnect or it doesn't connect with the black people or the working class black people that you say that you're advocating on behalf of? That's not success. The success has to come because you're actually making statements about educating people about black male rape, educating people about the, the causality and the class structure of police brutality, educating people about the harms and, and, and the institutional re, you know, reproduction of mass incarceration and incarceration or carceral logics. This is the stuff that black people, working class black people need to know because it explains the structural outcomes of what they experience every day. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to start a revolution, but it at least means like, oh, there's an account for why three or four of my black male cousins are are incarcerated. It explains why my you know my grandmother or mother or my sister or et cetera can't get work even though they're educated. These are the kinds of problems that we need to start analyzing and talk about seriously because we need to start energizing black folk that have knowledge, black social workers, black lawyers, black doctors, people that may be in their community that don't know that this population is going through this. We need to start getting in touch with them. This is not going to be a problem that's solved through rhetoric. And in the Trump administration, see, this is the problem. Under a Trump administration where they're going to roll back this kind of identity politics, where they're going to push back on you know, what they take to be politicized education and politicized science, you already see what they're doing to NASA. They think actual science is political now. So imagine yeah, what you're going yeah. to do when you're actually talking about identity politics, right? Like this is, this is going to be uh, repression. This is going to be the limitation of academic freedom. And in that world – if black people don't have facts and actual materials and theories that energize the public, they're not going to be able to survive within the small walls of academy of the academy when the institution's being crunched, right? And that's well, you know, you and know, that's why I thought the, that. Go ahead. No, go, you go thought ahead. that. Well, no, I thought that's why I thought that it was disingenuous for Texas A and M to throw a unity rally. Um, at the same time that the governor makes the announcement, or, or very shortly after the governor makes the announcement that the sanctuary campus won't work because you're going to be defunded, right? Like, what does it mm-hmm. mean to celebrate or unity that and then have that Spencer kind of threat? is on campus. Oh yeah, or you know, either yeah. One of the things that one of the reasons why I thought it was so very important for us to talk about imagining ourselves as agentic is because of what we are going to face and what we're we're already facing it. I mean, folks, unless you didn't get the memo, as you see these nominees that um, the man that's going to be in the White House, uh, Donad, the Donad administration is going to be the fuck you administration for the next four years, and it's going to be painful, it's going to be deep, our children are going to become more confused than they already are about who they are, and, you know, and we've got to screw our heads on right, we've got to not continue to deny on one hand, and to create these false reality bubbles for ourselves on the other hand. Uh, and, and Dr. Curry is the person who I am relying on to help us understand 
exactly how we have to move or how we, we you can't move beyond something Dr. Curry unless you see that it is there. Tommy, did I lose you? No, no, I'm still here. I'm with you. Oh, okay. And 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 so what we're trying to position ourselves, what I'm trying to position people into thinking is that to think that we can change with make change without changing ourselves is uh-huh. a fallacy. You yes. know, like yes. I'm going to have to take a, I'm going to take a break uh pretty soon, but one of the things I want to talk about is how our misunderstanding of our agency in this society, in this country has impeded our ability to organize effectively and successfully in so many places. We think that simply because we're going to have a march and the NAACP is going to be there and, the you know, the same names and people are going to be talking about it and Joy Reid will have the panel on her show and, and that's not anything. I've known Joy Reid since she was very, very young, uh, a young reporter in South Florida. Uh, <clears throat> so it's not something on her, but we've got to understand that our agency, whatever agency – that we create whatever, however we see ourselves moving forward. It can't be through the portals of the very systems that are designed to impede us. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why that's why I've been so critical in how we've simply mimicked the strategies of the 1960s and 70s, Right. Um, we, mm-hmm. you know, and this is and this is the and, problem and when with kind I, of when I make that comment earlier to, to tonight to to say uh, that Richard Spencer would never have come on a campus um, in Boston without a great deal of raucous from black mm-hmm. students in Boston in the in the in the early '60s when I was a student. We weren't dealing with police that were military then. Right. We were dealing right. with the Keystone cops. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, but see, the that's what I mean. Who, <laughs> the cops see, who arrested me, and I'm about a foot and a half shorter than Angela Davis, they, uh, mm-hmm. they, they detained me because they thought I was Angela Davis because my afro was big. <laughs> that's all it took, a pair of jeans and an afro. Yeah, and being but, but that's what. Again. But, but Janice, this is this is the thing. Like we, the world is modernized. Technology is modernized. We can track people with cell phones, right? And mm-hmm. and we don't. And what I'm so frustrated about is that we don't have, you know, these conversations with with the hackers. We're not having conversations, uh, you know, with people who are, you know, anti-foundational, anti-government, anti-institution to start educating people. It should be popular knowledge in terms of how we get around some of these, these systems and some of these, you know, surveillance mechanisms. But we don't have that. 
right? We claim that we're revolutionary, but then we, we, we offer ourselves the mechanisms and tools of the state because that's just what we do. We love to debate yeah. on Twitter, even though we know Twitter's moderate. It doesn't make sense. I've said this hundreds of times before. So when you have something like a Richard Spencer that gets protected by a university, no, ma- no amount of protest is going to change the rules or the loophole that the university used to let white supremacist hate speech on campus. You know, that's what I'm saying. If we don't start thinking about how to get around and make serious impacts and challenges to that, and we're not talking about how we can talk, you know, one of the pieces that I wrote, uh, the reason I wrote Disempowerment is because I saw that black political theory was so massively influenced by this idea of positive change that when we march, it means that we'll get something like the Civil Rights Amendments, right? But I'm saying that, I, I said, listen, if times have changed and we can't, if racism is permanent, if we assume what Bell is saying is true, then we can't look for positive change. It's not going to be them picking another amendment or passing another policy because we know those things are contingent. So then what is Derek trying to tell us? Derek is trying to tell you that you exercise agency, right? Like the story he gives us of Miss McDonald. You exercise agency when you take power away. Right? So when you interrupt mm-hmm. certain things that the status quo was going to do, when you interrupt the narrative that Texas A&M has for diversity by saying no blacks are attending, no browns are attending the unity rally, when you, you know, these are the, going to be the types of things that disrupt the way the status quo moves. If we start That's divesting right. places like Texas A&M, no black students come, no athletes play, these are going to be the types of things that are going to start costing it money. Right, and that's a disruption. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to lead to triumph, and you know, because Derek was very clear about that. It doesn't mean that you're going to get the end where you get freedom. But in a world where you're dealing with white supremacism, in a world where you're dealing with Trump, freedom may not be the actual goal in this instance. It may just be mm-hmm. to get whatever's coming to stop or to slow down. And I think that until mm-hmm. black people start thinking about that incremental um, obstruction. Unless black people and black academics as well stop living on the teleology of freedom and individual promise, unless we start disrupting those metaphysical narratives for intellectuals, then we're not going to be able to start talking to working class people who are the victims of what we're studying. And that's the biggest mm-hmm. thing. Like We're mm-hmm. claiming that we're mm-hmm. agents in the academy because we're performing, right? We're performing the idea of having agency by naming ourselves black, male, female, queer, da-da-da-da-da-da, any number of identities. But then the things that we talk about that affect those groups aren't happening to black professors. They're happening to black poor people. They're happening to people that, you know, in Louisiana, like my family. They're happening, you know, in the neighborhood that my parents live in, right? That's the problem I have, that we envision agency as the performance of a certain kind of rhetoric for recognition rather than viewing agency as the kinds of strategies that black intellectuals can get to educate the black working class to lift up and change their social environment and structure. Because a lot of these cases that we're talking about are the lack of resources, lack of social work, lack of health care, lack of opportunities in terms of jobs, right? These are the things that are affecting our people, and those are the manifestations of white racism and white supremacy because it allows white people to say, ah, those violent black people, let's criminalize those black men. And you see the reproduction of this all over black Twitter from people who are allegedly woke. I've gotten into tons of arguments where, you know, black women have said, well, black men are just more violent because they have more testosterone. Or when I point out that you have these equal rates of rape and domestic abuse, they're like, well, you're blaming black women. It's like, no, I'm blaming conditions like poverty and recidivism and alcoholism, right? Because that's why you see it on both male and female sides. These are not arguments about blaming individuals because I don't simply believe that individuals make choices outside of their environmental conditions. These are ecological problems. But if you have a theory of agency, which is my choice and what I identify as, then you're going to say, well, because black men identify as black men, that's a bad performance. That's a fundamental patriarchal and pathological performance, hence they're bad. 
So it leads you to the same kind of essentialism that we thought we were dismissing when we were getting away from black people are biologically inferior, black people are biologically violent, black people are culturally deficient, right? All those models we thought we left in the 40s, 50s, and 60s come back again now because it's a question of whether or not certain identities are deficient, certain identities are pathological. And that's what I mean when I say that we keep reinscribing the same kinds of, you know, disempowering and, and pathological and non-effective and socially impotent strategies to deal with problems in our community. The reality is most 21st century black people are not interested in empirically studying or understanding the working class black communities that they say they speak for. So you can't imagine agency as a thinker or as a black individual or black person in terms of race consciousness unless you deal with the people that you're trying to leave. And that reality mm-hmm. that we're talking about is why people like Richard Spencer comes to Texas A&M because Richard Spencer is willing to talk to those children, those white children, that may wonder why isn't there a white history month, right? You see, look, look at how white supremacy builds it in. Donald Trump said, listen, I'm going to energize poor white people, and guess what? I know that's going to resonate with middle-class white people because at the core of it, I know white people feel the same thing that I feel. This is our country. Right? That speaks yes. to them. So you could have all this liberal rhetoric. You could have all these white women saying, no, we're against patriarchy, voting for a racist misogynist because ultimately they know patriarchy works out for them. Racism trumps gender. Why? Because racism gives them benefit. It's what lets them marry their white man, have their white children, have white property. But we're arguing about identity because, like I said a year ago, we're missing that this election is going to turn on whether or not white women view their racial interests above the representational interests they have in a white woman being president. But those kind of analyses aren't being taught in class. Why? Because we have to assume a coalitional similarity between black feminism and white feminism that's only interrupted by exclusion and some taint to racism. That is not a structural analysis. That is not a genetic or parasitic analysis of what's happened historically when white men and white women vote. White women do not vote against white interests very often. There is some difference, and they're more liberal, but that doesn't mean that they always vote with the most liberal, which are black men and black women. And we and we're so backwards in this world, right? And this is this is I mean you have to think about what you know what I'm saying. We're so backwards that we will publish something in the root. I think it was the root where the guy came out and was like, black men are chauvinistic, even though black men voted like 87 percent, I believe, voted for a woman, right? Either 80 percent voted for Clinton, and 87 percent voted for Jill Stein, and then 13 percent. Uh, voted for Trump or 16 percent, one of those two numbers, right? And they were like, well, black women 94 percent voted. It was 13? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, we have 94% of black women voted for Clinton. So this guy comes up, black men are chauvinistic. And I'm like, how is 87% of anything chauvinistic? Right? <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't even... It's, I'm, it's I'm the like, way so, we read. <laughs> it, it's this, the way you, in which we, we are dismissive of information. Exactly. We are we we like the drama... Mm-hmm. Of in discourse, which is exactly. why millions of people will listen to a, a, a lady on XM Radio, but millions won't join India Declare, who gives you absolute information on Tuesday night, and it's free. Right, right. You right, know, that's, which is that's why we, value the we join with all these liberals who are talking about pay equity because they want $15 an hour, but we do not think about what $15 minimum uh, wages an hour does for poor 
black people because mm-hmm. what it does is disrupts and upends the other kinds of resources that that they will lose in in Absolutely. other resources because Absolutely. they're getting fifteen dollars an hour and fifteen dollars an hour will not pay the expenses of a single mother with four children. I don't exactly. care I don't care how you do the math. But see, which but is Jim, why you know, I've made this point. we keep saying, oh, they didn't go to college. They should have gone to college, and they would have gotten a good job, and, and no. then they wouldn't be victims of race discrimination. We go along with that nonsense, and it really we do. is nonsense. But see, and this, is, like and this is what I say. the drama. We, right, but this is you see, and this point is very important because this is what I'm constantly talking about in terms of how we understand black women's position, right? That you you we have black women who are making tremendous gains in education and matriculation, right? But then you don't see a global, overall uplift of the income in in households, even households that are run by these very same women. And I'm saying, listen, y'all want to fight about my brother's keeper? You could have a sister, whatever. That that that's a old debate, but why are we not targeting the kinds of employment discrimination that educated middle-class black women are going through as part of our discourse about income equality? Like, why, why is that not part of the conversation, right? Because that's not what we're designed, right? That's not what we're taught in school. We're taught in school, oh, women make 77 cents less than men, but that's white women, right? White women make 13 cents more than black men, and black men make well, you know, about the same as black women, two or three cents different, depending on who you're reading. And most of that could be accounted for in terms of overtime because of how many hours black men work in a week, they're, they're only a, a cent or two above, right? These types of things need to be talked about. We need to increase our understanding of what we claim that we're actually advocating for. And this is the problem is that you'll have somebody come out of the university and say, look, I'm for gender equity. And people are like, yeah, 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 that's great. You're feminist, da, da, da. And you're like, well, what are you protesting? Well, women get paid less on a dollar. And, you, and you're telling this to a black man. I, I got into an argument with a colleague in my department. She's like, well, you know, women are paid less. I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, women are paid less than men. I was like, no, they're not. White women are paid less than white men. White women are still paid more than white, black, brown men, women, et cetera. And she's like, oh, well, women generally. There, I was like, there is no women generally because you're paid less and you still marry white men, which means you get all their wealth. I was like, the fact that you don't want to talk about that kind of analysis in the real world means that you're recruiting black people. You're recruiting young black students, young brown students, young Asian students into the ideology that only benefits the second richest group. The second richest group, I mind you, that overwhelmingly voted for Trump. Now, yep. how then does yep. that explain the politics that they say is progressive that seems to lead you to the same conservative and racist end? But we don't have conversations about it, right? We don't have conversations about the differences between the race conscious, which overwhelmingly explains the class structure in this country, versus the idea that we just want equality generally. We'll talk about black men getting programs when they're having trouble matriculating, when they're not living. When I mean, the God, I mean, you know, the numbers are just so – you could ask my wife. I just get mad sometimes when I'm looking at these data sets. The numbers of homicide for black men between 15 and 34 are ridiculous. Right? When you're, I mean, I, you know, on Twitter I posted the, the UCR data for homicides of black men generally from 2013 to 2015. We're talking about almost 6,000 black men dying a year, right? And you're comparing this to roughly 800 to 900 black women. Now, of course, yep. all those deaths yep. are bad, right? I have to say that given the environment we're in because people think it's an identity politics. But imagine that. Imagine that you're talking about five or six times more deaths of black men in this country per year 
right, than their female counterpart. And then we'll get on places and say, well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about why we have on this one hand black women getting through college, black women getting jobs, albeit they're being discriminated against, which is not increasing their overall earnings or wealth intergenerationally, and the fact that all these black and brown men are being killed and exterminated. And I was recently on a panel uh, with a Black Lives Matter uh, leader uh, from Canada, and I gave a paper explaining this. And the only comment that came out of her mouth was, it's hard for me to listen to a paper about black men. Right? It's hard for me to listen to a paper mm-hmm. about black men. And I'm, and I'm saying, well, but you're leading an organization that the UN recognizes because of the death and disproportionate incarceration or disproportionation of black males in this country. And you're telling me it's hard for you to even listen to actual statistics about the disparity between black men and their female counterpart? I was like, we have a real problem, not just in terms of how we advocate for black men, but in terms of how we understand our condition as a community. Because all those black mm-hmm. men dying mean that they're not in the community, means there's less money in the community, means there's less workers in the community, right? It means there's less mm-hmm. people in dual-person households, which we know are necessary for the intergenerational transfer of wealth. I mean, even feminists like Patricia Hill Collins has made this argument, right? But we don't care about that. Why? Because we hide behind rhetoric, and we think rhetoric is what empowers communities, right? White people come to Texas A&M, and they get married, right? They they reproduce themselves all the time. I tell my classes all the time. It's like you'll be surprised how many seniors come through my classes and they're like, Oh, now I'm getting married. But with black people, we go to college and we learn things and theories by white people, the things that they give us in women and gender studies, some of the post structuralism they give us about race and identity and Africana studies, and all the white stuff they give us and certainly discipline like minded philosophy. And those students are not ready for marriage, they're not ready to form form beneficial economic partnerships, be they heterosexual, homosexual, et cetera. Those individuals are saying that I'm an individual, I can make it on my own, I don't need any of this stuff. Mind you, facing a world where there's overwhelming employment discrimination, even amongst black people with college degrees, especially amongst black men who are no no better off than white men with criminal records. Mm-hmm. But this isn't what mm-hmm. we teach. This we've, isn't what we teach our people. We've, we we we've got to be better centered in the in our in our discourse of reading the numbers. Math matters. History matters. And when we come back from this break, Dr. Curry, I want to talk to you about two things, and I want everybody to stay with us. Our number is 347-838-9852. One of them is um, this whole notion of the nonsense that we talk about generational differences in the black community. And the other notion about post-integration and um, segregation, especially in the South, and how that is going to matter in the challenges we see before us. Because I hear and read and see people who are just not getting it. This is our common ground. Thank you for being with us tonight. Our chat location blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG we'll be right back with Dr. Tommy J. Curry we're talking a genet and save us from the madness and save us from the madness and save us from the madness this is our common ground Thank you for joining us tonight. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Stay tuned. Our common ground. 
with Janice Grant. Always common ground. We interrupt this broadcast and bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. We interrupt this broadcast and bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. We interrupt this broadcast and bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. We want to interrupt your simple life to tell you that mainstream media is not telling you the truth. Subscribe to the Black Agenda Report. Get the truth, the insight, and the analysis. The Black Agenda Report. You've been warned and fortified. The Black Agenda Report. What the hell are you going to do? You don't have any superpowers. Don't confuse me with facts. Get your superpowers every Monday and Wednesday with the BreakingBrown.com call-in and talk radio show. YouTube at BreakingBrown.com, 9 p.m., Mondays and Wednesdays, with Yvette Cornell and Irami Osei from Paul. Join Irami and Yvette on their new broadcast. Call in, talk, and chat, 9 p.m., Mondays and Wednesdays. You're confused, you're confused, you're confused, you're outraged, outraged, outraged. Can't, can't, then you need some real, raw, and right now, find your cure at the I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 9 p.m., with India Declare. She brings you real, raw, and right now, believe me just right. every Tuesday, Don't believe me just right. 9 p.m., live, it's right. India, hey, hey. I Declare Real, show. raw, right now, I declare it. India Declare, real, raw, and right now. So we have to look at the mass situation, not those four people that got into school, not those four people who, are, uh, uh, who, are, who have a job somewhere or a better job or are making millions of dollars wearing uh, certain kinds of clothes and all this sort of thing. We have to look at what the mass, the mass of our people are still living in the ghettos of America. When we think about Detroit, when we talk about the inner city, we know what we're talking about, we're talking about black people living in Detroit and Philadelphia, Atlanta, Chicago. I mentioned all the housing projects, I can just name them off and they're still there. And they're still being occupied by masses of black, the masses of black people. So the question is, how do we get here? And maybe what we ought to do, uh, if anything, and certainly I have an interest in doing something to change the status quo after 30-some years, um, we really haven't moved forward in any meaningful way. Some individuals have benefited from some of the struggles that have been waged, but in general, our people are a third world colony and an oppressed group in this country. Our common ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time.
And we thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. Black boys 
a, th- a therapeutic group for black boys to talk through this Trump mm-hmm. thing and the experience that and 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 their experiences. He had a very traumatic uh, week during the during the the day before the election, where one of his his algebra te- algebra teacher. Uh, went through a tirade about how much he hated Barack Obama. And it was very, and he found it very painful. We spent a lot of time talking about it and trying to get him uh, stabilized about his admiration uh, or his, his respect for the achievements of Barack Obama. So we've been talking about that, and I'm I'm thinking that all of you need to think about pampering your emotional well-being, whether it's a group or a therapist. I mean, I love I love my therapist. I go in and throw my pocketbook down, and generally I'm looking like uh, I've been cleaning offices all night. But um, <clears throat> it's 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 a way of me protecting myself. Because I do mm-hmm. a lot of reading, uh, my eye is always on the prize. My eye is always on the news. I see things. I know things. My mother used to tell me when I was young that one of the reasons why I went through such uh, periods of anger and being in the in the Panther Party and all that stuff because I knew too much. <laughs> so I you know, I pamper myself in that way because I know too much. Mm-hmm. And sometimes knowing is painful. It is. It's very you painful. You know? Like when I see um how I because I know how important the matter of housing and housing discrimination and the resegregation of America and predatory lending and all of those things where people are protected under the Fair Housing Act. When I see people like Ben Carson going into the organization that is whose mission is to um, enforce laws that are designed to protect poor people, I tell you, it's real hard. It's very painful. And Pascal Robert was with us last week and um, and Yvette Carnell the week before and Dr. James Taylor the week before that. And by the time I process, synthesize, and get their analysis and insight on this, and you know, and I'll be crazy all week because I've talked to you for two hours. Um, we need a way in which, I mean, we have to swallow a lot of crap. I hate to curse yeah. on this, but it's late at night. Your your girls are not up, right? Um, no, they're asleep. <laughs> I, I have to. I have to swallow a. We as a people. And this is why an agentic state and being able to examine it is so important. We swallow a lot of crap. We do. Just to keep from, you know, I cannot tell you how many times I have to walk out of meetings 
in um in 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 my professional life just to keep from jacking the hell somebody up and dumping them out of a chair because of the crap that they say because right. of you know who they are they were all complaining about Donald Donad uh being elected and there were 15 people around the conference table and I know nine of them voted for 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 the Donad <laughs> so no, I understand that. You know, I mean, I, I think you may have seen my post, uh, you know, on Facebook. I just got tired of it. You see all these liberal, my, you know, liberal colleagues and, and people at the university, you know, oh, I can't believe Trump won, da 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 da. Right? You see all these white feminists like, oh, he's going to destroy reproductive rights. And there's just this massive outpouring about, oh, you know, poor white women. We're going to be so oppressed, even though white women put him in office, right? And I just lost it one day. I was like, listen, I'm sick of this. I was like, every time, I was like, white women historically are not killed. That's just the reality. I was like, no matter how racist and conservative a country gets, white women are not the ones that are overwhelmingly killed and, and drug out on the streets. It's black and brown men. It's the people that you think are invading your country. At the turn of the century, it was yellow men as well. I was like, so I'm tired of hearing these narratives where everything that doesn't work out for the liberal progressive side somehow means the doom of the world. Well, at the same time, black men, Latinos, right, indigenous men are being killed by cops, locked up, and have very little prospects to live. And that is destroying our communities. Black women are suffering under poverty. They're suffering under domestic abuse, substance abuse, drug abuse. Right? All these things happen to our communities when the world gets racist. White women are not the victims of that. And this kind of dishonest, you know, putting yourself at the forefront and the center, this kind of, uh, you know, celebration of losing, because really what it is is, is a celebration of the catharsis of the liberal left, that they get to say, well, we lost and we're victims too, because they're pretending that in a Trump world they're just like black people. And I'm just, I'm just tired of that shit. I'm just, I'm sick of the way that the academy utilizes imaginary marginalization, like white people side didn't win, to kind of niggerize them, where they get to be right next to black people. And the, fr- the most frustrating part about that is that we'll, we'll use the problems that largely uneducated working class black men have in this country, which is high rates of homicide, incarceration, and employment discrimination, and we'll say that's the problem of black people. Then the minute we come to say, well, listen, this is the problem of black men, they're like, well, you can't talk about black men. You're centering black male experience. So you use black mm-hmm. male experience to define the racial experience, right, because – you know, you don't have the numbers otherwise, right? You just don't have – you have disproportionate rates of homicide for black women, given their, you know, their smaller number than white women, but you don't have the sheer numbers of, like, 6,000 black men getting killed a year. So, you know, yeah. it's just – it's all artificial, you know, and, and I think that if we're truly self-reflective – I mean, the part of agency is also is, – is one part self-reflection, being reflective and not being predetermined or overdetermined by your environment, but the other part is doing something. And in the sense where you're only stuck in the first part, whereas that you want to declare yourself as separate, you want to declare your yourself as educated because I'm really disturbed by this kind of 21st century millennial phenomena where and and you know and, and people even in my generation participate in the academy where it's like well I'm educated hence I'm different I'm educated hence I think differently about the world and these you know these 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 poor working class people that that really bothers me I'm a first generation you know professor right like I literally am a generation removed from from sharecropping and and, and domestic work for white folks so it is not my sensibility to believe that I have to fundamentally dis, I, that I have 
have a fundamental disdain or aversion from that group or class of black folk because that's that's where you know that's that's where my family is. So that's a very different experience, I think, than people who are second and third generation black academics who seem at home in the academy. The university pisses me off because it doesn't explain anything. We're arguing about who produces a theory, but the theory doesn't have any causal explanation for the world. I can't. It doesn't explain why people become divested and hopeless in in poverty. It doesn't explain why people in the South, where I'm from, seem to have no hope but can give you the reality of what's going on institutionally. Those kinds of problems, those phenomena, right? The both both depression, the anxiety, as well as the cultural resiliency that poor black people have, is what we should be studying. But nobody wants to study that anymore because it's not cool. It's not post-structural. So when we're talking about being ages, we have to think about the culture and historical resources that working-class black folk have that are going to see us through it. This is not going to be based on the disdain of black folk waging critique against white people. That time has passed. It's This election, if it proves anything else, is that the categories of liberal thought, be it through education, be it feminism, or be it a, a leftist-slash-neo-Marxist critique, does not work. It does not mobilize the majority of white folk because they're still heartily based in white supremacy. So that means that we need a new strategy. We need something that centers race and then emanates from there. Somehow, So where are we going to get the structural critiques? What are going to be the ways that we can get alliances and coalitions within black people, which sounds crazy, but how are black people going to overcome their artificial separations, be it class, gender, sexual orientation, etc., to stop pathologizing each other to, to deal with what's coming? Because those are going to be important questions. And you see, the funny thing that I, that I, that I always point out to black people, you know, because, you know, people, people in the academy have a real problem with the things I say because I don't uphold their kind of ideologies, right? I really don't believe in that. I'm not saying that always critical race theory works, always, you know, Afrocentrism works, always feminism works. I think everything has its shortcomings and its successes. But at the same time, ask yourself this. How does a person who's largely uneducated, largely a businessman, end up uniting white people from the rule, from the Rust Belt, from the moderate side? He swung some liberals and then got middle-class whites all behind one idea. You see, that's impressive. We could, I don't like Trump. I have no respect for Trump. But the fact of the matter is, this is a white man who overturned a largely moderate Democratic platform, right, because they voted for Obama twice and converted it to a, a, a staunchly conservative alt-right white supremacist campaign and have poor white people who are going to be screwed the most out of this voting for him based on the idea of a racial, of a racial ethno-nationalistic state. Now, we may indict that. We may say that idea or aspiration is wrong, but he did it. So it suggests to us that the post-structuralist ideas we have, which separates us on the basis of identity, which separates us on the basis of class and social mobility and potentiality excel within either you know, the professional working class ranks or the academy, doesn't have that same kind of resonance. Because we know that, it does, that our languages in the academy don't resonate with black people in the working class. So then what is it about the racial idea that is able to capture the imaginations of even poor white folks in a way that our alleged ideas of fact and deconstruction can't for working class folk? In other words, how is it that a rich white man connects with, with poor white people, but we don't even want to entertain, entertain or, or connect with or mobilize poor black folk? See, that's our problem. Our problem is that we don't understand. We think that the recognition and validation we get for theoretical concepts invented by white people that resonate with their imaginations and their disciplinary training is success. When white people are seeing – I mean, think about how the white academic has to look at this moment. The white academic can say, I could be the liberal or I could be the racist. I can, I can now publish materials 
on cultural deprivation. I can publish materials, right, on the difference on, on concrete race differences, cultural deficiency theories. I can I can say these things. Is there a call or a need for ethno nationalism to bring the country back? These are going to be conversations because now the public intellectual culture that's being brought in by Trump, while it has to push back by liberal whites, nonetheless now has an audience. This is what we're seeing with the little white girl that got the cupcakes from um from Noah Trevor, right? Um, Tommy Lyron, or what her name is, the Fox woman, right? There is a public audience for this idea now, and she's dumb as a, as a, as a toothpick, but nonetheless, people are listening. <laughs> so the so the question, <laughs> right? Not <laughs> she's not she's yeah, not deeper than a splinter, a right? <laughs> but but the question is, how are they mobilizing the racial aspirations of people such that that group of people now want political voice and presence, right? That's 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 the trick. We we assume that poor people generally are apathetic. They don't have resources to to, to manifest themselves pu- politically, right? That's why we say that the that poverty replicates itself in terms of an absence of political will and voice. But but these people want voice now, right? So why is it that our people don't want voice? Well, we're we're crushing them with police brutality. We're we're disenfranchising them in terms of voting. We're 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 having mass incarceration. So then, how does the intellectual community? connect with that? Well, we create a pseudo-intellectual movement that, that, that disowns many of the people because they have the wrong genitalia? That does, see, we're, we're behind, right? And what this alt-right group has done, if, if you want to talk about agency, the, you got it, you know, as much as we don't like white folk in terms of their racism, you got to admire that they're persistent. They changed the message. Mm-hmm. They said, if we're alienating people because the old clan is violent... And, and, this, and remember, this is, what, this is what Newton said. He said that the sensibilities post-civil rights is that white people like to maintain the idea of civility so they do not like outward and overt displays of violence, while nonetheless legitimizing covert violence to sustain the status quo. So now the alt-right guy pulls a page from that, right? And that's on the first two pages of the dissertation. So if you, read, you, know, if you pick it up, it's right there. The alt-right guy says we're nonviolent. Right, so now, now this fits with the sensibilities. Well, this is just an opinion, right? Which is why they get to hide behind this is free speech, diversity of ideas, marketplace of ideas, right? And we're protesting, which we rightfully should. But then, what's the counterinterpretation of a race consciousness that draws on all the darker races besides for identity? In other words, if you're in a white supremacist republic with a white supremacist president that doesn't want immigrants or black people to excel, then what response do you have? Intersectionality is not going to work there. Post-structuralism is not going to work there. This isn't going to be about coalitions because those same white women you're trying to form coalitions with, they've jumped to the Trump side. And the only thing you have now is to hold out a few hope that your liberal friends are actually telling you the truth even though they're benefiting disproportionately from the types of policies that Trump's going to going to give him because he's going to target poor people. Welfare, Medicaid, right? These types of things. So it's going to pull the rug from under poor black people. The types of social structures that poor black people, poor brown people in this country depend on, they're going to take away the ability of anybody who's an immigrant to actually become a citizen, and they're going to deport everybody who's here as undocumented. So this is a war not only on the idea. See, this is where black people have to start thinking more materially. This is not a war just about ideas. This is a war about the actual demographic presence and populations of racialized people in this country. You take away the ability of people to have a presence in the country, 
you take away their ability to have a majority political voice in this country. He's responding not only to what he sees as a demographic degradation of the spirit of America, which is why he says make America white again, pulling from cultural idealists, our nationalists, our ethno-nationalist idealism from the turn of the century, but he is also showing that if you take away the people, you decrease the ability to disseminate ideas. You discourage them. He's creating a repressive situation for the lower-class black and brown people, the fastest reproductive people, because he knows that white people are going to become a minority very soon. See, these right. things can be explained, right? These things can be explained. I mean, that's only one possible explanation. So there could be tons of other causes. There could be other things that cause it. But at least within this possible theory or hypothesis, it has a lot of explanative power in terms of why he's identifying certain groups of people's threats. And I told somebody, I was like, you know, people kept saying, oh, Trump's bad on gender, Trump's bad on gender. And I said, no, Trump's very good on gender. It's just that y'all keep reading his racist statements of being about race and not gender. So when you tell white women, hey, guess what, white women? Mexican men are rapists. That's gender politics. Why? Because historically, historically, most of the laws of immigration in this country, especially at the turn of the century, given the yellow peril, the black peril, have always based themselves on limiting the interaction of racialized men to white women. That's where the myth of the black rapist comes from. That's where the myth of the yellow rapist comes from. That's the myth of the red man being a rapist. The whole idea of rape from immigrant or foreign peoples has been the dominant view of feminist discourse for the last 150 years in this country, well, at least since the 1880s. Right? Mm-hmm. But we don't read. Right? You see what I'm saying? We don't read. We thought, oh, he's going to lose all these white women. He grabbed a white woman's vagina. He says white women shouldn't do X, Y, and Z. And overwhelmingly, <laughs> white women come out and vote for him. Right? For him, yeah. It's because yeah. we keep missing the point. Right? And it's, it's and, not and, a hard and, and, point to get. Yeah, and it, it really is around understanding agency. White women understand authority Absolutely. and the power authority wields. And for some reason, you're absolutely right, we want to be in to the ideology and the concepts and and the discourse. You know, for instance, uh, you know, Derek Bell was a mentor of mine. I wasn't a Harvard student but he was a mentor to to most of black students who came through Boston in the 1960s. And we maintained a relationship for um, a long time um, after he moved to New York City. But one of the things that he he was adamant about is this idea of interruption. Uh, And what we have to begin to do is to understand where we want our agency. I talk about this a a lot, and and you and I have talked about this on this very program a lot. We have to understand and we have to commit, we have to understand where our commitment is. Is it a commitment to the larger society or is it a commitment to the black community. Mm-hmm. And um if that is so, then we have to understand where we can better understand where we should be interrupting. And I'll give you an example and I want you to think about this and talk about and reflect on it, Dr. Curry. One of the places that we must begin 
to interrupt is the trauma faced by children of men and women who are incarcerated. Mm-hmm. We can do that. We can make a difference there. We can have Saturday schools. We can impact those of us who have voices in our community or who intend to have voices in our community. We need to be talking to the boys clubs, boys and girls clubs, the why, the churches in our community about having intervention programs just for those children. We need to be able to say to poor mothers and grandmothers and wives who have to go visit their their husbands and uncles and fathers in prison that there's a place where children can go to understand what all of it means. Mm-hmm. We're not taking care of our children. No. No, we, we're not. You know, and, and the other is that we're not organizing in places where it is meaningful. For instance, in our communities, we have loads of black electricians and plumbers, woodworkers, carpenters. We're not organizing them through their unions to provide skills, training, and those those kinds of skills as a way of having a making a meaningful life for black girls and boys in the I future. Agree. We're not I doing agree. that. No. No, and I think, But we think we you think, know. you know, last night was this, this big um annual ball. They were at this hotel with four ballrooms and filled with black people. I didn't go. Um but my um, my my granddaughter attended, and there were nothing but black professionals uh, in 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 attendance, and that should have been that could be a way if someone would give me you know I was saying to to some people if someone would give me the people who bought the tickets and their email addresses we could begin to organize those people to figure out what resources we have in our community that's willing to commit to the people in our community who have no resources. And that is how you create agency, ladies and gentlemen, because we are so busy worrying about the failed agency, our ability to even imagine being an agenic in the larger community, we haven't figured out we could be the kings and queens in our own community. Absolutely, I mean, and this is and this is why people in the 1960s, you know, you know, Janice, the thing that always gets me about about the academy today um, is how we like to demonize the 60s, right? We 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 suggest. Oh yeah, that, y'all doing that a lot. Y'all doing that yeah. a lot. I'm very offended. Yeah. Somebody was yeah. talking about the boomers the other day on Twitter, and I almost went off, but that was the day <laughs> I had been to my therapy, so I was good. <laughs> you good, huh? But, you know, it's, 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 it's disingenuous, though, right? I mean, because yes. on the one hand, we romanticized the nonviolence pro- nonviolent protests of the 60s. 
And then we reproduce the militant the idea that the militants were ultimately bad, violent against women, things of that sort. And you know, I mean, I've read those criticisms. I mean, I think that you know Elaine Brown's you know taste of power has things to say. I think you know Bianca Vasada has things to say. But again, the question becomes: Why do individuals represent the ideology or the intellectual you know pinnacle of a whole group mm-hmm. of people over two decades? And I remember when we were, I was debating with uh, Eichard, uh, you know, and he made the comment that, you know, these, these groups of people or the, you know, um, sold on ice was the Bible. It's like, how do you read people's struggle for liberation, right? There are always mistakes. I mean, I think we could certainly now say that Michelle Wallace's book, The Black Macho, was a mistake. She doesn't even accept it anymore herself. She says, I disown the book. So how do we read people's experimentation with ideas, leadership strategies, et cetera. And then what does that why do we link those experimentational ideas, be they correct or wrong, as a function of their character? And see, and this is this is why I really do think that we need both I, I hesitate to use the word decolonization. You know, uh, I remember when Joyce Ladner, you know, wrote the death of uh, white sociology you know, she said we need to decolonize methods. I think that it was an authentic and genuine gesture then. Um, now I don't, not so much. But we have to really mm-hmm. interrupt the assumptions that we have about black capacity for change. I mean, for some reason, we just exactly. really do believe that working class black people can't do anything unless the academy says so. And that's not how movements started. What you had were black people who were students, right? And this is and this is why I always talk about the energy of black students. I tell my te- my, my class, I was like, listen, the world's not going to change because of people like me, right? The world's going to change because of people like you. I'm here just giving you ideas, and you're and those things are going to go in ways that I can never imagine because you're young, and because with youth it brings both recklessness and innovation, right? I was like, so you have to think about that constant potential that youth has to change structures in the world. What we do in the academy is simply reproduce ideas. And I'll be very clear about what I mean about that. What we do is we take the theory we were taught in grad school, we reproduce it and say, it's my theory now, I claim this, I identify with it, and we say that that's agency. Right? I'm being self-reflective because I'm repeating what Patricia Hill Collins said. I'm being self-reflective because I read Derrida. I'm self-reflective because I've read Fanon. And what they miss is that the people who read Fanon, like Huey P. Newton, right, because Wretched of the Earth was the actual Bible <laughs> of the Black Panther Party, right, guns, you know, Negroes with guns, right, According, and this is what Kathleen Cleaver was saying in back in 1994 when she was talking to Mabel Williams and Angela Davis, you know, Eldridge was handing out Negroes with guns to people that were coming into the Black Panther Party, not so long ice, but the reason that that happened is because those are ideas that caused the creation of other ideas. And that's not we're, yes. what we're willing to do now. We're, see, we're not willing to use an idea so that people can reject it and come up with something better. Because now we're self-reflective only if and only if we hold to this idea. We're self-reflective mm-hmm. if and only if we're black feminists. We're self-reflective if and only if we reject patriarchy. We, you see what I'm saying? We, we, we make necessary and sufficient conditions for self-reflection that don't reflect the actual interests or reality of black people. So yeah, if we're true to what... The, the destruction that comes with identity politics. Exactly. Because, you know, I'm, I'm constantly asking people, you know, I, I talk to, to men's groups and black women groups on campus, you know, the sororities, and I ask them, I was like, listen, surely someone here has a fact. We're at a university. I know it's uh, going to be hard. I know you have to ask more than one person, but somewhere there has to be yeah. a fact about black existence. Yeah. It, it, it's, 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 it's almost like the question that I, I ask 
often hear, and that question is, were you not paying attention like 12 years ago or 20 years ago? And I, I, I had in a discussion, I was on a roll on Thanksgiving Day, but in the discussion I had to ask when the, when we talk about Black Lives Matter is re- revolutionary, and that's why before I went to the break coming back, I wanted to talk about this uh, generational gap thing that everybody's uh-huh. talking about. I asked the question, when was the last goddamn time that a group of black people walked into the Democratic Party and said, excuse me, who was it? It was Fannie Lou Hamer. Do you know how many years ago that was? Uh-huh. Because... That was real uh, interruption. Interruption so much that the President of the United States made up a speech so that the press would have to move away from the convention and cover his speech because they did not want that interruption to work. When was the last time? And this Democratic part, I mean, this Democratic would... The, the last convention, this last convention, there was no disruption there, and there should have been a lot of disruption. Hillary Clinton was the presumed nominee. Is that the yeah. best you can do? Even if it was a, is that the best you can do? Interruption. And well, I mean, the look. other thing is that. Under the leadership of my generation, for all of y'all who want to go on Twitter talking about the boomers, it was Ron Walters who wrote the call for Gary. It was Ron Walters who wrote the call for a third black independent party, and nobody responded because he was talking about, we were talking about poor people not people in the academy, and maybe we were good because wasn't nobody in the academy anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look, the, you, know, and, you know, people... And, 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 oh, and, sorry, go ahead. And, I mean, those are the kinds of questions that we have to ask about what kind of agency are we imagining and what is the great fallacy in the way in which we imagine it, Dr. Curry, because... You know, it's really interesting, and I used to think about it a lot. Those of you, those of us, and I was thinking about it, I just recently read a paper on uh, Verna Moore, who was one of the people, one of the women from Mississippi, who went into that Democratic convention to interrupt. And there's a thread, and I want to get your take on this. And the thread is that, just like me, I lived my childhood protected from the messages of white supremacy because I lived in segregation. Black teachers, black preachers, black neighbors, mm-hmm. everything was black. Everything that all the stores, the black people owned, them, the tailor, the dentist, the doctors, even we had an uh, ophthalmologist, black ophthalmologist in my community. And so growing up, 
I had already developed my sense of agency. And my mission was focused on the lady down the street two doors down who was who never went to school. But she had wisdom. Absolutely. And so I'm 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 I want you to talk a little bit more, I know we're running out of time, about this black generation, black post integration uh uh post integration movements. You know, and when you think about it, all the people of SNCC uh, mm-hmm. Most of the people of SNCC, most of the people in in the party, uh, no matter where it was, whether it was Oakland or Chicago or Boston or New York, we were Southern. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, they, they take a lot from Southern folk. Uh, I take that kind of person, given that I still declare myself Southern. Mm-hmm. But, uh, no, look, I mean, the the people the people who are do, who have historically done the most – have just have not been the educated classes, and we live in a, because of social media. Um, what we've kind of engaged in now is is a kind of um, worship, and I call these kind of pseudo intellectual, you know, circles or spheres. We we've engaged in a kind uh-huh. of of worship of certain kinds of ideas and theory, uh, despite the fact that they don't really resonate with the reality that these young people are encountering, which is why you now yeah. have. Like I said before, with Black Lives Matter, you have millennials leading an organization that's saying, oh, the organization is intersectional, but woefully exclusive in terms of black men and poor black people, right? Uh, And that's why it's been predominantly embraced on college campuses because it resonates Mm -hmm. with middle-class aspirant black folk, right? Um, So what the post-civil rights generation has done is it's taken out the context of what we think violence is, um, and it's replaced it with recognition. And I say that mm-hmm. seriously because even when I was arguing from with the young lady from Canada that was in charge of the Black Lives Matter chapter there, she couldn't get, you know, she could not understand why the sheer numbers of death actually matter, right? Um, yeah. She wanted to mm-hmm. argue with me that even though 9 to 15, I forgot the number we were actually discussing in what year, um, but it was between 9 and 15 black women, because she's like, well, those lives matter. I was like, well, yes, they died. They're black people. They matter. But when you're talking about institutions that are attacking groups of people, these were not middle-class women. These were poor women, right? These, some of these women were shot because they were attempting they, – they were, they were victims of them shooting at black men. Overwhelmingly black men constitute incarcerated population, et cetera, right? And like, these are structural realities. These are things we call facts, right? We yeah. can measure and yeah. verify them. So the millennial, the millennial generation is really based in this discourse, and you have to think about that. The reason that that's the case, and this is the problem I have with, with intersectionality theory as it's applied to many of these kinds of uh, academic contexts, is that it was a post-civil rights doctrine that was initially uh, – made to talk about the ability to see or recognize black women as having dual oppressions in the workplace, right? Because it was dealing with yeah. Title VII jurisprudence. And and because it caught on as an idea, they said, oh, well, now we could take this idea that was made on Title, how Title VII was written and apply it to the whole structure of the world. That makes absolutely mm-hmm. no sense, 
Right. No, no that's not yeah. to say that intersectionality hasn't highlighted some things, but when that becomes the dominant language of of the millennial generation about being intersectional, yeah. I don't know what that means. Because you're telling me, yes, in a workplace that completely makes sense, right? Because yeah. you're saying that look, yeah. I experience things in this way. That doesn't mean that through since the 1860s or the 1850s, whenever you want to start black recognition of gender, it's probably more accurately around the 1820s or 30s. But whenever you start having these debates, that's the way that it was also looked at. Because the debates about Title VII were about whether, and, and this is the funny thing, right? Like even historically, it's wrong because the debates in the congressional record about Title VII were about whether or not white women would be able to launch suits, um, given that we were they were giving all this power to yeah. black people. Right, because they were fear, they were fearful. The, the fear was that black women be able to raise suits, but then white women couldn't because there wasn't sex yeah. in it. Because black women were still black. So the actual debate that Kimberly Crenshaw was talking about is not between black men and black women. It was actually between white women and black women, and that's missed because the ideology of feminism has socialized us to believing that black that white women were outside of it and that white and women were always invisible. Not necessarily the yeah. case. So when you talk about well, this post integration, is I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. When we talk no, about post integration, yeah. So when you're talking about this post integrationist generation, right? These people that are born in the '90s and beyond, what they're coming into is a world that's saturated with this discourse, and this is the problem that I have with blogs. Because what blogs are doing, and, you know, and people never want to really look at blogs as this kind of propaganda or socializing media. But what these blogs do is it appeals to the instant access and instant gratification that millennials have. Millennials love being connected to everybody constantly. They're on Facebook. They're on Twitter. And blogs become their substitute for actual reading. So that means that you're able to socialize a large group of people quite quickly because you've changed the way that technology works and the way they assimilate information. So nobody reads a peer review article anymore, but somebody writes a thousand word blog that just summarizes stuff, and then bam, now you have everybody believing this stuff. I've gone to it, yeah. yes, I've gone to I've gone to places where I've gotten given data and people literally said, oh, you know. I've given data about how many black men were shot a few years ago at Knox College, and one woman said, no, that's not true. Black women were shot at the same rate. I was like, wow, that's interesting. That's not the, what the data says. says. Where did you get that from? Oh, well, just around. They like, no, you got it from this blog, Dean. She's like, yes. So these things stand in for research, and it means that we're yeah. arming a whole generation of people not with ideas that resonated like King or X or Carl, you know, Carmichael or these people, but just the instant gratification they have to what the liberal view of race is in this country. And that's largely problematic for organizing and, and, and actually being able to reach out and form coalitions and meaningful um, organizations with working class people. Yeah. Well, I want to take these two calls uh, for you, Dr. Curry. We've only got yes, five minutes, so we're going to move through oh, wow. them very okay. quickly. 312, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Hey, Janice, this is uh, House. Uh, just want to say hello, and you got one of my favorite guests of all time, Dr. Curry, on. Thank you, um, You mentioned – oh, no, thank you. <clears throat> you mentioned a whole bunch of things um, because the gems just kept coming. But uh, just to touch on a uh, little bit about Trump, what about the 30 – they said it was 30% of blacks that voted. I'm, I'm probably misquoting this number. But it was a uh, amount of blacks that voted for him and amount of Hispanics that voted for him. I think mm-hmm. he gave a really good um, – um, he spoke really well about white women and voting for him and probably got him over. Got him over. But what about uh, those minorities? Mm-hmm. Um, and also – what about uh, uh, the, the identity politics you mentioned and kind of what Bernie Sanders said, how we need to – he thought uh, the Democrats needed to uh, leave the identity politics alone. I was wondering what you think about that. 
Yeah, um, I read some of the reactions that people had to, to Bernie Sanders. I mean, largely he was arguing that we need a, a structural and class basis. Well, not structural so much, but like a class articulation of the left. Um, I think that's a mistake because white <laughs> white populist uh, theorists and white Marxists still have racism. Um, I don't think it should be phrased in terms of identity politics. I mean, us talking about race is a structural reality of, of America. So I think we can easily talk about the things that the Democratic Party and even white Marxists or neo-Marxists do not do well um, based on how their theories and how their policies, more importantly how their policies, don't benefit working class black and brown folk. Um, in terms of the people that voted for Trump, you know, it's, it's really surprising. Because when you look at, I mean, they're they're not finished compiling all the numbers, but I'm I'm really waiting for this stuff to come out in the political science journals. But when you look at the group of people that voted for Trump, so most black people, you had, you know, 13% of black men, right? Um, largely those people were working class, and in the 6% of black women that voted for Trump, those people were educated. So, you know, I was discussing this with my wife. I think that the working class black men voted for Trump because they didn't want to vote for Clinton, right? Uh, in the sense that they already know that Clinton supports policies that lead to incarceration and, you know, the demonization of black men. I don't know why Trump became the solution to that, but I think those were mostly not Clinton votes, right? Or they were single-issue votes, right? People who said, I agree with Trump's view on abortion or I agree with Trump's view on religion or something like that. With the black women, the educated black women, I think that that's interesting because they, they, the majority of those um, from the educated black women's side – we really need to like survey and, and interview that population because that doesn't fit with any of the theories we have about middle class black women or educated black women more generally. Um, in terms of Latinos, that's just I mean that's amazing. I mean those mostly you have to think that those are probably going to be debates about religion, um, yeah. and and the single issue issues on abortion, right? But until until this 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 stuff kind of comes back and they start surveying the populations, we won't know for sure. But if I had to take a first yeah. guess, that's what I think it would be. Hey, House, thanks so much for your call. I, th I think that was uh, uh, some great um, areas that you wanted to explore with Dr. Curry. You always call toward the end of the show. We got to go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the question. Take care, Dr. Curry. I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to take other calls, but Dr. Curry is with us often. We're going to get the interlocutors together in uh, two weeks because I want to end the year um, uh, talking about specific things that we need to be doing. You all need, know you need to be doing it doing some stuff that you're not doing. Dr. Curry, thank you so very much. You know, it's always my pleasure to have yes, you join us in the sanctuary. And um, I'm looking for you for in two weeks. But you got this agenic thing down. <laughs> thank you, ma'am. You, you, you got it down. Thank you so very much. That was Dr. Tommy J. Curry. And I have posted, you can... Uh, join him in his discussion on Facebook at Dr. Tommy J. Period Curry, and RacismReview.com is his blog. Um, so we will have him back. I do. Before we go, I want to tell you that uh, we're sending our, out our best to my brother and um, Alpho. Uh, who is down um, and not feeling well um, th 
this week, and we hope that he will um, do better. Mm-hmm. Next week, coming up, uh, two of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Wilma Leon and Carl Nelson, will be joining us on Our Common Ground. Thank you for being with us. Y'all do better, y'all, and start having a wonderful, wonderful holiday season. Not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. Thank you for joining us here on Our Common Ground. And thanks to Yvette Carnell and Pascal. Mm-hmm. Got that wrong. <laughs>